Well, our, our sermon text today is, uh, we're going back to our study through Mark's Gospel, and we are in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, Mark writes, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man, met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority and the power that is in your word, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it always accomplishes the thing you sent it forth to do. We ask this morning that you would help us, that you would work in us, open our eyes by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you know that I was raised uh, in a little farm town back in central Pennsylvania. In that time growing up, I, I attended and was a member at a United Methodist church there for my entire childhood, up through high school and everything. And, and by and large, at that church, the Word of God was not preached in sincerity and in truth. Um, in many ways, you could say that I'm a believer in Christ today despite being raised in a church. It's just the grace and mercy of God alone uh, that's responsible for bringing me to a church out here, actually, 
where I finally heard the gospel preached clearly on a regular basis every Sunday. Now, I went to that Methodist church for 18 years. Who knows how many sermons I, I listened to there. Uh, I went there every Sunday. My mom took me and my brother there without exception. Every Sunday, the only things that kept us from church were sickness or two feet of snow. Other than that, we were there every single time. And I, I can honestly say that I don't know, I don't recall a single sermon from all those years, hundreds and hundreds of sermons that I've probably heard. I can't remember a single one of them. That might be a good thing, except one. I can remember one sermon that I heard there was actually after I moved away and came back as an adult in my early 20s when I was in the Navy. Now, part of that lack of re recollection is probably my fault. I wasn't paying attention half the time, probably. Um, but the reason I bring all this up this morning is the one sermon I've, I can recall hearing at that church dealt with the account that's before us in our text this morning. Now, I don't remember if the sermon I heard was preached from Mark's gospel or if it was the text, the account of the same thing in the gospel of Matthew or Luke, both in chapter 8 of those uh, accounts in the synoptic gospels. It's in all three synoptic Gospels, but it was the last sermon that I ever endured listening to in that church. And the reason for that will become obvious in a minute. The preacher there preached the text. Now, that's something they normally didn't do. Uh, I recall the pattern of preaching that went on there in that church, and maybe still does to this day. They would have a text, they would read the text, and they would leave the text behind. And they would t talk about whatever things they wanted to talk about, but this day was an exception. This day, the preacher preached the text. He tried to stick to the text, which was unusual. But his primary point seemed designed to explain away much of what was found in the text. Most of the time in that sermon was spent explaining away the demon possession of that man as being uh, something along the lines of him experiencing some kind of psychosis. The preacher basically said that Jesus was just using the, the terms, the ideas, the words of that day, the things that were commonly held in that time and place, you know, things like the supernatural, the existence of demons, demon possession, things like that. And he was using the terms of the day to describe what we today, we who are supposedly modern, educated, sophisticated folks, the things that we now know to be things like schizophrenia. That's what he said. That was his explanation for this text. That was the main point of the sermon was basically to undermine the truth of Scripture. Now think about, uh, think about that for a moment. Does, does this text allow for such an interpretation? Does it actually make any sense of this text at all? Are you and I to believe that Jesus cast mental illness into a herd of 2,000 pigs, <laughs> causing them to all stampede violently to their deaths? Yeah, it, it's kind of strange to think that. Are you and I to believe that Jesus curing a man of mental illness, is what they thought, right, was apparently so traumatic for the townspeople to behold that they begged Jesus to leave their region? Seems reasonable, right? How thankful they must have been not to have had psychologists and psychotherapists in their day. It would have been a terrifying town to live in. One can only imagine how such preachers attempt to explain away much of the Bible. The previous passage, the storm at sea, that Jesus stopped the storm. I, I don't recall hearing a sermon on that, but you can only imagine what naturalistic causes 
they must have come up with to try to explain it away. I don't know what to do with the resurrection. If you have trouble with this passage, imagine the resurrection of Christ and the gospel itself. Well, such, such is liberal mainline Christianity, I suppose. Some of you are raised in that kind of a background as well or have had experience in that kind of a church background. Uh, thankfully, you're no longer there. Uh, thank the Lord for his mercy. Well, uh, our text today in many sense, in many ways, is, is kind of a scary story, isn't it? It's not as scary the way they taught it, but it's, a, it's kind of a scary story. And what makes it even scarier is that it's a true story. You know, when you were kids, when you were going, maybe you were going camping and the other kids were trying to tell scary stories... Well, the ones that actually scared you weren't the weird ones. It was the ones that that you were told were true. That this actually could happen. The thought that these things could actually happen added something more scary to them. Now, I make it my practice at some point in the week uh, prior to to Sunday to try to read the upcoming sermon text to our kids. Now, I have to admit uh, that the nature of this passage gave me a little bit of hesitation this week when I read it to Ben and Eliza. And why is that? Well, you read it and you think, I was worried as a dad that I might scare them by reading this passage to them or that they might ask me hard questions. Uh, and, and granted, if you might not know this, but uh, typically I read these texts to them at bedtime. Bad, bad timing for Papa to read Matthew 5, 1 through, through 20. Um, now, as I was thinking about it and debating among, amongst myself uh, silently, uh, I thought, what should I do? Do I pick a different? Do I chicken out and pick a different passage? Do I, you know, try to find something less, uh, less possibly frightening? And as I did, as I thought about it, it reminded me of a, of a, a quote uh, by John Calvin. Now, John Calvin wasn't quoting about this text; he was quoting about the doctrine of predestination in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And this is what he says, and I think you'll see the point in a minute. He says, "For the Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit." in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture, lest we we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what it is in any way profitable to suppress." A couple pages later, he says, whoever then heaps odium, we don't use that word these days, but whoever heaps odium upon the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God as if he had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. Again, this this text isn't uh, primarily about predestination, but I think the same principle applies. I find myself saying, well, would God have put something harmful in his word? Is his word going to harm my kids? And so I had to tell myself, no. Even at bedtime, uh, it's okay to read this text. Maybe I had to explain it a little bit more, uh, but we decided to, to go. I decided to go ahead and, and read it. Reading it to them, uh, if I was going to not read it to them, what was I saying about God? Was I somehow reproaching God, as Calvin says, by not reading it, as if he had let something slip into his word that was going to harm our children. And so we read the passage together. And full disclosure, as far as I know, everybody slept well. Nobody, nobody woke me up at midnight. Uh, the, kids, the kids were fine. No harm done. No damage done. Um, now, in the previous passage in Mark chapter 4, at the end of Mark 4, if you were here, you remember the Lord Jesus showed his almighty power over the forces of nature in stilling the storm. 
Remember that windstorm, how great was that storm? The disciples, some of whom, at least four of whom, were seasoned fishermen and accustomed to life on the water, even life on that sea, literally feared for their lives. Remember they woke up Jesus, he was sleeping in the back of the boat on the cushion. How he was sleeping in the back of the boat is a mystery enough. But he was asleep, he was tired, and what did he do? If you know the story, they woke him up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, basically, knock it off. And they did. The elements, the wind and the sea, as the disciples say in verse 41, obeyed him. Jesus talked to inanimate objects and they snapped to attention and did exactly what he said to the letter. Peace be still, and it was peaceful and still. A great calm came over the sea. Now in our passage here in Mark 5, Mark highlights again the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ, this time by showing his power over the forces of hell itself and casting out an untold number of demons from this man. The beginning of the story, it, it reads like something out of a horror movie. It really does. The more you think about it, the more you think, wow, somebody, how has someone not made this into a movie uh, by, by now? Um, but the man was demon-possessed. And as bad as that sounds, in verses 3 through 5, Mark adds the following. He says, he lived among where? The tombs. It's bad enough he lived in a house. You know, the kids would call it a haunted house. Nobody would go near the street. They'd dare each other. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. That's hand and foot. Shackles go on your feet. Shackles and chains he was bound with. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It's a frightening picture to think about. He lived among the tombs. He couldn't be bound even with chains and shackles. And in verse 4, Mark comments, no one had the strength to subdue him. He's setting the stage for what's about to happen. Everybody knew no one had the strength to subdue this man or to tame this man. But somebody was about to get off the boat and do just that. Now Matthew's parallel account, uh, which is actually shorter than Mark's. Normally Mark is the short account, but not in this case. In Matthew 8.28 he says this, When he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. It's like they were guarding the area, and nobody could pass them by. Now, the Lord Jesus was about to change that, wasn't he? He was about to plant his flag, so-called, on that beach and change things. Now, if you were paying attention as I read that verse, you might have noticed a slight, maybe not so slight, difference in the account. Maybe a large difference. How many demon-possessed men are there in Matthew's account? I'm not good at math, but two. Two, Luke and Mark both say that they don't mention two. They, don't men they just mention the one individual. Now, how are we to understand this? Is there a mistake in God's word? Is there a contradiction here in the word of God? How are you and I to account for this, this disparity? Well, the first thing we have to do is be honest and say that on the surface it does look a little bit troublesome, doesn't it? Mark uh, or Luke um, Think about this, though. Does Mark or Luke ever actually say there was only one? No. That may sound like a fudge, but it's true. Neither Mark nor Luke say there was just one, 
and he came running up to Jesus. They focus on the one. They don't say there was only one. And if you read Matthew's account, which is much shorter, you'll notice in Matthew's account, he doesn't really focus on the man at all. He doesn't focus on the mercy shown to the man, the deliverance of this man, and the change that came over him. Both Luke and Mark do. Our text does focus on that quite, quite a bit. In other words, all three accounts are about the same exact incident, but they don't necessarily focus our attention on the exact same things. Matthew had a different point in mind than Mark or Luke. Well, both Mark and Luke emphasize the great contrast between the reaction of the townspeople and that of the formerly demon-possessed man that they focus on in our text this morning. They, the townspeople, what do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. They want him to get right back on that, on that boat before he's even dry. The one man, the one man that he cast the demons out of, what does he beg Jesus? He begs Jesus that he might be with him and go with him wherever he goes. If he's going on the boat, where does the man want to go? On the boat. He wants to follow Christ. This man went from a demon-possessed man to a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. In verses 6 to 7, Mark says, And when he, that man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, or implore, uh, you by God, do not torment me. Now, this demon-possessed man saw Jesus from a mile away. Now, was Jesus alone? The way the text reads, you'd almost think he was. Remember in Mark chapter 4, not only were the disciples with him, there were other boats with him in that storm. Who knows how many people landed on that beach when Christ and his boat landed there. But what does it say? He saw Jesus. It doesn't say he saw the group of them and was curious and ran up. He saw Jesus right away. And he saw him from afar. In other words, he recognized Jesus for who he was instantly, even from a distance. And what did he do? He ran up and fell at Jesus' feet. The King James says this, he ran and worshipped him. You might think that sounds like an odd picture, a demon-possessed man worshipping Jesus. But that word, proskuneo, there is commonly translated worship. And what, you know, when you think of someone's posture, you don't do it here, but worship, in many ways, you think of someone kneeling. And bowing down, well, that's what this man, this demon-possessed man, was, was doing. He was bowing down before the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognized the power and authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. He even calls him, what does he say in verse 7? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. He knew exactly who he was dealing with, which explains his posture and his actions. It's kind of ironic in our text that demons, as, and this has been the case throughout Mark, really, demons so readily recognize Jesus for who he is. His authority, his lordship, while the townspeople, the people Jesus is preaching to, are often so blind in their unbelief as to who Jesus really is. They don't, they don't recognize him as, at all. They just want him gone. The demon recognizes exactly who he is. You might remember in earlier chapters of the book of Mark, he's constantly having to tell them to be quiet to not let people know who he is. When Mark, uh, in, in our text, verses 9 through 13, Mark kind of adds the, uh, the scary cherry on top of this horror show Sunday. He says, 
What is your name? Jesus asked him. He, he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. It'd be bad enough if it was just one. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's kind of hard to imagine how frightening and how violent that must have seemed. What that looked like to the people that were standing there watching it. How many demons were in that man? There's been speculation. Some, some, have, some have written that the, a Roman legion was supposedly 6,000 men. So they say, well, they make the, the jump from one uh, to the other. He says his name was Legion, for they, he, they, were many. The fact that Mark points out that there were about how many pigs? 2,000 pigs. Probably gives you some idea of what the math was. Uh, how many demons were in that man. Think about the picture that paints of that man. How desperate, how hopeless, how powerless that man was and his condition was before Jesus showed up on that boat. Think about how hopeless that man was. You know, in some ways, we don't even think about that. We just think about the poor townspeople. They're being terrorized by this man. They can't go anywhere near where he is. And yet the the text makes a lot of focus, makes us focus our eyes on, on him. Now, as scary as that sounds... You know, is, is that really all that different in some ways from the condition of every person who is outside of Christ and still in their sins? Now, they might not be demon-possessed, uh, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, the Apostle Paul describes the condition of unbelievers this way. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Dead in sin, following the course of this world, following whom? The devil himself, having the spirit of the evil one at work in them. Very similar. And it finally calls them the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Breaking chains and scaring people isn't the most common result of satanic influence. It's not the most common result. Disobedience to God's law is... Spiritual blindness is. Rejecting Jesus Christ is. The scripture talks about the doctrines of demons. False teaching is. You know, we we probably don't realize that uh, often that, that this is probably a Gentile territory. Decapolis is Greek for ten cities. This this is quite a detour that Jesus seems to make and seems to make for the sake of this one man. You know, in our day, we think of Jew-Gentile. We don't think of as big of a difference as it really would have been. Think heathen. Think pagan. Think the blindness of pagan idolatry. That's probably what dominated this place. And so you have this demon-possessed man whose name is a military name, Legion, 
in some way kind of acting as a sentry. He's the lookout on the beach. But guess who lands on that beach? Jesus does. The white flag goes up immediately. He runs up, kneels at Jesus' feet, and does exactly what he's told. And begs for mercy from Christ. But that man's condition isn't that much different, even if it's more dramatic than the average unbeliever that you and I may know. Again, think about it. Jesus casts legion out of the man and permits them to go into a nearby herd of swine. They rush down the cliff to their death. And what happens to the man who had been possessed? He's healed and delivered. He's, what does Mark say in verse 15? He's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Now, what was the reaction of the town people? Much like the previous text with the storm, you know, you, if you didn't know the text already, if we hadn't already read it, if you haven't read it a thousand times yourself, you probably would think, oh, well, they must be awfully relieved. They must be, you know, finally, somebody came and tamed this guy. Now we can go to the beach. Now we can, you know, we can do things besides herd pigs in the, in the area. You know, were they glad that he was there? No. No. Much like the disciples after that storm was stilled in the previous text, their fear actually went up. Their fear increased. It didn't go down at all. And it, it doesn't really make sense in some ways if you think about it. And they begged Jesus to leave. How long was he on the, off that boat at all? We don't even know, but it wasn't very long. It was nighttime when they left to come across the water. And that very next day, they're asking him, please, you turn. Please go back from whence you came. Now, why is that? If you think about it, does it, it doesn't, in one way, it doesn't really make sense. But really, there's nothing more frightening to the unrepentant and unre, unbelieving than the presence of the Almighty God, the Son of the Most High God. There's nothing more disturbing to the unrepentant and unbelieving than the presence of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. And so they begged Jesus to leave. As far as they were concerned, he couldn't get back in that boat fast enough. Couldn't get back in the boat fast enough. As some, you know, those same people one day would answer to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as all mankind must do. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Reminds me of the Nicene Creed. He shall come again with glory this time. Not in humility, but with glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, what of the man whom Jesus had delivered from that demonic possession? He begged Jesus Christ too, didn't he? Everybody's begging Jesus in this text. But he begged Jesus that he might allow him to be with him. All he wanted to do was be near the one who had delivered him and shown such great mercy upon him. Interestingly, as we're going to see, this man's the only one in the entire text whose begging, whose request, is denied by the Lord. He's the only one. What does Jesus tell him to do? Go home and tell everyone what great things the Lord had done for him and what great mercy he had shown upon him. And what did he do? He did exactly that. He went and proclaimed. The word is the same word that we get preached from. This man went from a demon-possessed man to a preacher in his hometown. He preached how much Jesus had done for him. Notice that's what the text says. Jesus tells him, go home and tell everybody 
what the Lord has done for you and what great mercy he has shown upon you. And what does the man say? He tells everybody what great things Jesus had done for him and what great mercy he had had. Who's the Lord? Jesus, the demon-possessed man, the man who was formerly possessed, he knew who Jesus was now. And he told everybody, the Lord, Jesus is Lord, had this mercy upon him. Now, the most remarkable thing about this passage is, is probably not what you might think on the surface. It's not really the exorcism of a legion of demons from that man, although that's certainly the part that jumps off the page at you. The most amazing thing, I think, about this passage, if we give it some thought, is that the Lord Jesus went all that way, endured a storm at sea, to save one man. He went all that way to save one sinner. This whole round trip was to save one man, and also a Gentile at that, from the power of Satan. It's no wonder Jesus told the man to tell everyone what great things he had done for him and what mercy or compassion he had shown to him. That's some great mercy and compassion. You know, as bad as his situation was, and the first part of the passage paints a pretty bleak picture, doesn't it? As hopeless as he really was, Jesus came and saved that man. As Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, here's that in spades. He came to seek and to save that one man. It kind of reminds me of that account of the woman uh, at the well. When Jesus normally, everybody would have gone a different way. Jesus had to go through Samaria to reach one person for her salvation. Well, let us learn from our text here that Jesus is mighty to save even the most far gone and hopeless case that you can imagine. No one is beyond the reach of the one who is mighty to save. That man was not beyond his reach. No one that you know is beyond his reach and power to save. Now notice again that that demon-possessed man was the only person in the story whose prayer or begging was denied by Christ. Jesus granted the request two requests of the demons, didn't he? They asked, begged, uh, implored not to be exiled from the region and to be permitted to go into the swine. Done and done. You want it, you got it. Didn't have to argue their case. The, the townspeople, what did they request? What did they beg him to do? Please leave. Don't stay here. Don't come around here no more. Right? And what does he do? He gets right back on the boat. He doesn't say, hey, I'm tired. It's been a long journey. Let me stay a couple nights. He leaves. He gets right in that boat. And everybody else, you can imagine what the looks on their faces must have been. We just got here. Really? You know, everybody gets back on the boat and leaves. They're probably hope checking the weather as they're getting back in, in the boat. But let us mark carefully, you and I, that there was great mercy in his saying no to that man. That man he delivered from the powers of hell. He was going to use that man to spread the gospel in a dark place, in, in a Gentile place the Decapolis. He was going to be bringing the gospel of Jesus, the good news of the Lord Jesus to those Gentiles. And let us also mark carefully that the Lord Jesus, when he says yes to the prayers or requests of the unrepentant and the unbelieving, in that yes, there's a form of judgment. There's a form of judgment. He wanted the, they wanted him to leave, and that's what he did. 
And so there's great kindness and mercy even in the unanswered prayers of God's redeemed. And there is nothing to be envied in the answered prayers of the unrepentant. So if you are yet unrepentant and outside of Christ, be careful what you ask for. You know, the first chapter of Romans speaks of God basically giving people over, giving them what they want. You don't want to have God in your thoughts? You got it. It's not a good, it's not a good request. It's not a good thing to have answered that way. He gives the unrepentant sometimes exactly what they want, but the last thing they should be asking for. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, as, as, you, as many of you, most of you are, you can take great comfort even in the unanswered prayers, although no is an answer, right? Uh, for your heavenly Father intends even that for your good, even that for his glory, and even that for your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that shows uh, your Son, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, the Son of the Most High God, going far out of His way uh, to save one man who had no hope, who was a picture of someone already dead, far gone, and yet when, when You show up, all things are possible. And we ask that You would give us grace to, to understand that, to believe that You can save anyone. Just like the Apostle Paul said, that if, if You could save him, the chief of sinners, there's no man beyond Hope. There's no man beyond your, your reach through your, through your gospel of Christ, your Son. Give us grace to believe this. Give us grace to trust that even when you say no to some of our prayers, it's always for good. And give us grace to go forth in this place and glorify the name of Christ and follow him and glorify him and tell our neighbors and family and friends as that man did what great things the Lord that you have done for us and what great mercy you've had upon us in Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.